Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Not Monday. But it feels like a Monday for a lot of people, doesn't it? It feels like Monday. It probably (laughs) might feel like you if you were lucky enough to have Memorial Day off. It is Tuesday morning. Good morning, everyone. We're so glad you're with us. I'm so glad to be joined by my friend Erica Hill. Nice to be back by your side. Good long-ish weekend. Very relaxing. It was lovely. The weather here was incredible. We hope you had a good one. Let's get started with five things to know for this Tuesday, May 30th. New this morning, drone attacks hit the heart of Russia. Two people are injured and three residential buildings this morning are damaged in Moscow after the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv withstands another attack. The debt limit deal set to face its first hurdle today in the House Rules Committee. Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he's not worried. This despite concerns from at least two Republican members of that committee. Police in Hollywood Beach, Florida, say at least nine people were shot along a boardwalk. Three children among the wounded, and we're told at least one suspect has been arrested. Also today, Elizabeth Holmes will report to prison in Texas, a former Theranos CEO facing 11 years behind bars for fraud and conspiracy. And the Miami Heat headed to the NBA Finals, where they will face the Denver Nuggets. The Heat crushed the Celtics last night in a dominant Game 7 win in Boston. CNN This Morning starts right now. Here is where we begin because new this morning, the Russian capital getting a firsthand sense of war after an alleged drone attack. Here you see a plume of smoke rising and take a look at this. You can actually see a drone flying over the city as a man points out of his window. And here what appears to be a fragment of a downed drone. Russian state media says two people were injured in Moscow and three residential buildings were damaged in the attack. Russian military officials blame Ukraine for this. Something, of course, Ukraine denies. The attack, though, coming just hours after yet another aerial assault on Kyiv. Ukrainian officials say one woman was killed, 13 people hurt. There have been 17 attacks on Kyiv so far just this month, ahead of that planned counteroffensive we've been talking so much about. Officials also just releasing this body camera video of police responding to one of those attacks. It gives you a real-time look at the daily reality of war here as officers are out there to help injured civilians. Let's bring in now CNN's Fred Pleitkin, who's live in eastern Ukraine for us this morning. Uh, So first, Fred, what more are we hearing about this attack on Moscow? Hi there, Poppy. Well, certainly uh, the Russians are are pretty shaken by this attack that happened there uh, on Moscow. And one of the things that they're obviously doing, as you've noticed, is they blamed, as they put it, the Kiev regime, obviously blaming the Ukrainians. Some of that footage uh, that came out uh, of uh, Russia certainly seemed to be pretty dramatic with that person pointing at that drone. Now, the Russians say that all of the UAVs, as they put it, the drones that were sent towards Moscow, were put out of commission. They say that several were taken down using electronic countermeasures, which brought them off course, and then they crashed. But they also said that in five cases, they needed to activate their air defenses and shoot them 
them down with short-range air defense systems called the Panzer air defense system. Nevertheless, there have been several Russian politicians who have come out and said, look, we believe this could be our new reality. This could be the case because of the ongoing war in Ukraine that it can also come to Moscow. Uh, obviously, a lot of residents in that city pretty shaken as well. This happened in the early morning hours of today and definitely not something the Russians have seen before as this uh, war has been going on, guys. Can you tell us more about the strikes overnight in Kyiv, Fred? Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually at the scene of one of the strikes uh, here that happened in Kiev overnight. And I can tell you, we, we were actually in, in Kiev. We're, we're not in eastern Ukraine. Um, and the night was definitely not calm. I mean, it was over several hours that we heard drones in the air the entire time. It's those Iranian-made Shahed drones where you can see, hear the engine howling the entire time. And then you can also hear uh, the sound of the machine gun fires the Ukrainians are trying to take them down. Where we are right now, you can see substantial damage after one of these drones impacted here. You can see the clear up is already going on. But I want to just ask uh, our, our cameraman, Will Bonnet, he's going to pan up right now and you can see that it actually impacted up there in the first and the top couple of floors of that building. Now that is something that is absolutely significant, guys, because despite the fact that the uh, Russians shot dozens of drones once again or sent them at the capital, Kiev, the Ukrainians say they managed to take most of the drones down. Now, what you're seeing up there, the Ukrainians are saying is actually damaged from a drone that was down and debris then hit this building and caused that explosion that you saw up there. Unfortunately, in this building, one woman was killed. I was able to speak to Kiev's mayor about this right here a couple of minutes ago. Here's what he said. Actually, in May, we have uh, a lot of attacks uh, to our uh, city, not just uh, to capital of Ukraine, also in other cities and a lot of people killed. Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko, of course, former box champ as well. He was on the scene here very early on. And of course, not a quiet night here at all. And, you know, this is the third major missile and drone attack that we've had here in the city in the past, I'd say, 30 to 36 hours, some of them with drones and cruise missiles, some of them also with ballistic missiles. So right now, the Ukrainian capital really feeling and a lot of people here obviously showing a lot of resilience, guys. Fred Plekton, live for us in Kiev. Thank you very much. Well, all of this comes as President Zelensky now says he's made a decision on the timing of Ukraine's counteroffensive. The commander-in-chief and the commanders of the operational directions reported to the staff not only the supply of ammunition, not only the training of new brigades, not only our tactics, but also the timing. This is what is most important. The timing of how we will move forward. We will. The decisions have been made. Joining us now, CNN military analyst, former member of the Joint Chief of the Joint Staff of the Pentagon, retired Colonel Cedric Layton. Colonel, always good to see you. As we listen to what we heard from President Zelensky in that nightly address, the fact that he says they now have the timing, mm -hmm. not saying what that timing is for obvious reasons, but that the timing has been decided. What does that signal to you in terms of where things stand for this counteroffensive? How quickly could it happen? Well, good morning, Erica. It really tells me that they've... Uh finalize their plans. They're moving forward in a way that is, you know, quite uh, methodical, uh, and they're doing it in a way that will allow them to uh, move forces where they need to. Now, the one thing that they don't have is strategic surprise, but they do have tactical surprise. They can move forces where they need to. The Russians, of course, are going to be watching them from an intelligence perspective, uh, but they will be able to do some things that will keep the Russians guessing, uh, but there's clearly a timetable that's been set, and we should be seeing 
seeing a few things, maybe not like D-Day back in World War II, but we will be seeing a few things that indicate an offensive is going forward. I'm interested in why Zelensky would have said that, that I, you know, we have decided on a time frame we have one. Why would he say that at all? Why would he make that pronouncement? Poppy, I think it's uh, it's messaging. I think it's also psychological. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to tell the Russian side uh, that uh, we are coming for you. We are going to uh, move you out of our country. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, he's still keeping them guessing, although he's made some pretty emphatic statements here. Uh, he's keeping them guessing as to the timing and the place uh, where this is actually going to occur. And it could even be places uh, in the sense that he could use multiple areas uh, to mount certain types of attacks. We've seen this litany of attacks in Kyiv, but we are also seeing attacks making the way all the way to Moscow. Russian officials, as Fred Pleitkin, Fred Pleitkin excuse me, just said, saying they believe this could be their new reality. How are you reading that this morning? How are you reading those attacks? Yeah, these are very interesting because generally what they're using are drones that are actually Soviet-era drones that have been modified by the Ukrainians. Uh, So the Ukrainians are uh, not violating any promises that they've made to uh, the West and to the U.S. in particular, not to use U.S. or Western-supplied weapons to attack Russia itself, Uh, but they're still doing it. And it's not quite, uh, you know, setting Russia ablaze, to borrow a phrase from Churchill. But what they are doing is they are actually moving forward and uh, telling the Russian population that they are at risk of uh, some kind of an attack. It's not uh, as bad or as severe as the attacks on Kyiv, obviously, uh, but it is clearly something that puts people at risk. And it, uh, it, it's a warning. One question in all of this sort of bigger picture, uh, Colonel, is the role of China. And can China mm. be a moderating force at all? They have said as much, but there are real questions about what that would look like and where their alliance would be. The fact that given that the uh, Chinese government is refusing to sit down with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, basically saying, no, you cannot meet with your counterpart part at this security forum happening this week in Singapore reminds me of what Lloyd Austin told Caitlin in their interview months ago after the spy balloon, right, that that basically the Chinese weren't picking up the phone. It does not seem like things have improved since then. How does that factor into what's going on in Russia and Ukraine? Yeah, that's certainly true. Things have not improved. And it seems as if China and Russia are basically in lockstep uh, when it comes to the diplomatic right. aspect of this. And I think what they're, the Chinese are failing to do in this particular case is take advantage of an opportunity to play the role of mediator, or at least seem to be playing the role of mediator. Uh, the very fact that they're not meeting with Secretary Austin is an indication that uh, they're not really interested in being a mediator. They're more interested in supporting Putin, and that's going to limit their effectiveness with Ukraine, and it's going to limit their effectiveness with other countries in the West. Colonel Cedric Layton, always appreciate your insight. Thank you. Thank you. This you morning, bet. new surveillance video shows the moment that people started running for their lives. This happened during a mass shooting on a crowded Florida boardwalk. Nine people were shot, including a one-year-old baby. Here's another look at the chaos. Police say they've detained one person. They're still searching for an additional suspect. Carlos Suarez joins us live in Hollywood, Florida. I mean, on a beach boardwalk, nine people, a one-year-old shot. What do we know about the victims at this time? Well, right now, Hollywood police have not released the names of these victims. Authorities out here said that an argument between two groups of people led to that shooting. The broadwalk out here is lined with hotel, restaurants and bars. It's where thousands of folks had gathered to celebrate the Memorial Day holiday. 
and it's when that shooting took place uh, Sunday after uh, uh, Monday afternoon, rather. Uh, cameras out here captured the crowds of folks running for safety after they heard the shooting take place. Uh, some videos that were posted on social media showed some of the injured being treated on the beach. Now, Hollywood police say that they had a number of officers in the area in anticipation of the holiday crowds, and so they were able to get a lot of these injured folks to a hospital in relatively short order. The chief of police here in the city, uh, in the city of Hollywood uh, talked about uh, exactly some of his feelings a few hours after the shooting. Here's what he said. It's unfortunate when we have law-abiding citizens come to our beach to enjoy the day that gets disrupted by a group of criminals who engage in this type of violent activity. These that were involved in the incident today will be held accountable for their actions. All right, Poppy, so nine people in all were shot. Four of them minors, including that one-year-old baby, were told all of the people that were shot are expected to be okay and that that one-year-old uh, baby is in stable condition. Thank goodness, but still terrifying. Carlos, thanks for the reporting very much. Well, the debt limit deal set to face its first major test in, co test in Congress today. Will it even make it to the House floor? That's a question, if you can believe it. We'll have live <laughs> coverage from Capitol Hill in the White House. Plus, smoke from a massive wildfire in Canada could spread all the way to Boston and New York today. Meteorologist Eric Van Dam is gonna break down what that could mean for the air quality where you live. Okay, so there is a deal, a framework, a deal in the works. There's actually legislative text to the debt limit deal, and it will face its first major hurdle today. The House Rules Committee set to hold a make-or-break vote that could potentially kill this before it even reaches the floor. Some of the loudest Republican opponents of this deal sit on the Rules Committee, Congressman Ralph North Northam and also Chip Roy. They've been very vocal about this. Here are the, these are the same hardliners that Speaker Kevin McCarthy agreed to put on the powerful rules committee so that he could win the speakership back in January. This is interesting. Here's what Congressman Roy told Fox News about the meeting. I'm going to be making that loud and clear to my Republican colleagues that this is not a deal that we should be taking. The whole point of the Rules Committee was to say that we were going to have a power sharing where we had a representation of the entire conference. And I'm not thrilled with this bill right now, so I'm not going into the Rules Committee with a very positive view towards this bill. Kevin's a friend. I think the Republican Party is best when we're unified, but not for the sake of unity. So. As Speaker McCarthy scrambles to prevent a mutiny, President Biden is trying to shore up enough Democrats to support the bill. You know I never say I'm confident what the Congress is going to do, but I feel very good about it. There is no reason why it shouldn't get done by the 5th. I'm confident that we'll get a vote in both houses, and we'll see. We'll see. We have team coverage, congressional correspondent Lauren Fox on Capitol Hill. Let's start with Arlette Zines at the White House. Arlette, I mean, he says we'll see because progressive Democrats, many of them are not happy. And I think it was really telling that Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal told Jake on Sunday, yes, Biden does have to worry about progressives. Yeah, good morning, Poppy. And President Biden there said he feels very good about final passage, but he also acknowledged to reporters that he doesn't know if he can get progressives on board with this agreement. This all comes as there's a very real palpable frustration from progressives in the Democratic Party over the toughening of work requirements for some recipients of food stamps. Now, what White House officials have been arguing to progressives and Democrats behind the scenes is that they need to focus on what was not included in 
this bill. The fact that they were able to keep out even tougher work requirements on other social safety net programs. The fact that they were able to preserve Democratic priorities like the Inflation Reduction Act. Those are all arguments as they're trying to get Democrats to support this agreement. Now, behind the scenes, both senior staff and President Biden himself have been working the phones uh, to Democratic lawmakers as they're trying to get this legislation over the finish line. And even as some progressives are saying they're not yet ready to support this agreement, the White House did get a boost yesterday when this coalition, the New Democratic Coalition, the leaders of that group said that they will endorse this agreement. That group uh, comprises about 100 Democrats, uh, which will be key as they are trying to get this legislation over the finish line with that House vote expected tomorrow. Lauren, when it comes to uh, this House Rules Committee, the meeting that we're all waiting for later today, there is the potential to stop this bill in its tracks. Yeah, I mean, one thing to keep an eye on this morning is the comments from Chip Roy and Ralph Norman, who are two of the conservatives who sit on the House Rules Committee. Like you mentioned, they were placed there by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy as part of the concessions in the race to get McCarthy that gavel. They wanted to have equal representation on that committee of not just allies of the speaker who are always going to vote for bills in the Rules Committee, but also some conservative hardliners. Now, all eyes are going to be on Thomas Massey. He is another conservative who was placed on that committee. He has not said yet whether or not he would support this legislation moving through the Rules Committee, but the expectation typically is that the Republican Party, the Republican members or the majority party in that committee are the ones who get it out of the Rules Committee and then put it on the House floor. If it does, get to the House floor tomorrow. The expectation is that Republicans are going to have a strong vote. I'm told by multiple sources that they are working to lock down about 150 or more Republican votes. Of course, the expectation being that this vote was always going to be a coalition of moderates in the Republican and Democratic Party with the expectation that they could lose those on the far right and the far left. Erica and Poppy? Lauren, what Chip Roy is essentially saying here and what he said yesterday is essentially... There was a handshake agreement, Speaker McCarthy, to get my vote to become speaker that all nine of us had to unanimously agree on legislation before it goes to the floor. And there's a lot of dispute about whether that was actually the agreement. But if that's the hang up, it's not just going to be a problem for this legislation. It's going to be a problem for every bill. Well, and the concern, right, is that Democrats could always support the rule. That typically doesn't happen. It's not the minority's job, typically, to get a bill out of the House Rules Committee. But the expectation is that typically Republicans would do the heavy lifting here. Of course, again, Thomas Massey is going to be a key vote here. And I should note that there were a number of Republicans. We asked about, you know, Chip Roy's claims yesterday. Dusty Johnson, right. Stephanie Bile, both saying that they had no idea that that was a promise. And if it was a promise that was made, it was not shared more broadly with the Republican conference. Copy. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks, Arlette. Appreciate it. It is being called one of the strictest anti-LGBTQ laws in the world. How Washington is now responding to new legislation out of Uganda. And this. New video this morning shows a cruise ship being rocked by a storm. This happened over the weekend. The rough waters delayed the ship's return to port in Charleston, South Carolina, and the departure of its next voyage. And people on that ship say its interior was waterlogged, filled with debris for days. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
Smoke from devastating wildfires in Canada could blanket New York and Boston today. And forecasters are warning this smoke could get so heavy that the air quality could not only drop, but you'll likely be able to smell the smoke if you're in the area. The fires have forced thousands of people to evacuate their homes in Nova Scotia. Take a look at some of this dash cam video, which shows a raging wildfire there. So car driving down a highway, flames and smoke rising there, as you can see. Scary stuff from both sides of the road. CNN's Derek Van Dam is with us now. So Derek, give us a sense. When could folks in the Northeast start to see the smoke make its way down? Yeah, I, I think we've got another couple of hours before we start to experience the thickest of the smoke. And uh, good morning to you, Erica, and good morning, New York City. Your hazy skies with this kind of hue of orange and red brought to us by our northerly neighbors in Nova Scotia. You saw the wildfire smoke that kind of inhibited the driving conditions just outside of the Halifax area. And you just got to follow the wind to see where the smoke is coming from. So you can trace it back all the way to the fires that are taking place just outside of Halifax. And uh, that is going to drift into places like New York, Boston, Philadelphia. And this is different than the smoky sunrises and sunsets that we've seen over the past couple of weeks. That was smoke from the upper levels of the atmosphere from wildfires in Alberta. So that's the western side of Canada. This is different just sheerly because of the proximity of these uh, wildfires in Halifax just to our north and the wind direction. So it's going to actually draw in some of that uh, smoke into the lower levels of the atmosphere, into almost the surface. So just as Erica pointed out, the potential for you to actually taste it, almost smell it as you step outside today is a real possibility in New York and Boston. Air quality there starting to go downhill as the smoke starts to settle in. Erica. I guess that means I shouldn't, story. shouldn't go outside for a run later, huh? <laughs> yeah, I would put that off until tomorrow. <laughs> All right, Derek, thank you. <laughs> Good excuse. All right, President Biden is threatening sanctions in Uganda after the president of Uganda signed one of the strictest anti-LGBTQ laws in the world. President Biden called the measure shameful and demanded its immediate repeal. Republican Senator Ted Cruz joined the president slamming the new law, calling it horrific and wrong. Our David McKenzie joins us live from Johannesburg with more. David, good morning. You've been following this for a long time. It's been making headlines, but now it is officially law. And some of the provisions in it also criminalize sex education completely for the gay community. Uh, they also call for rehabilitation or conversion therapy, as many people call it here in the United States. This is broad. Where does this go? It uh, Poppy, good morning. It is very broad and very dangerous for the LGBTQ community, say human rights lawyer. I've been speaking to people who are part of that community in East Africa. They say they are afraid. They're worried because this is a very vaguely worded, uh, worded bill, but has very severe punishments, including years in prison for promoting homosexuality. And I'm using the term in that bill. It also says that you can't uh, have sex education for those who are in the LGBT community. Public health officials say that it will stop people going to clinics and getting services because they are afraid. Already many people have been fleeing their homes, afraid of being handed over to the authorities because of this bill. And that's the other thing it asks for, is for people to hand over those who they believe are LGBT to the police and for them to face prosecution or very widely discredited conversion therapy. So it is a very bad news bill for that community. Uh, and there is a promise from lawyers within the country to fight it. Poppy? This went back to Parliament because this has been going on for months now. And they made some revisions to it, but ultimately passed it. So since it has the support of the president and the majority of Parliament, is there any chance at all of it getting revoked or repealed? 
Well, it would certainly get appealed in a court of law, and that was happened to a previous law like this uh, several years ago. But it will, we believe, go into effect in the coming days or weeks, and then it basically means that people can be put in jail or have the death penalty against them because of this law. Now, the U.S. President Biden uh, has said that they are going to review the relationship through the uh, National Security Council with Uganda. You can expect possible sanctions coming in the coming weeks. The U.S. spends about a billion dollars in humanitarian and military support of Uganda, and that money is extremely important leverage for those wanting to see the end of this bill before it does real damage to those communities in Uganda. And because you had uh, Senator Ted Cruz, a Republican, of course, uh, weighing in on this, you possibly could have bipartisan support in Congress to punish Ugandan lawmakers uh, for this bill. Poppy? To, to sanction, essentially? You could sanction uh, individuals and certainly put punitive measures when it comes to foreign aid coming from the U.S. Uh, to Uganda. And I expect that to follow from the White House in the coming days. Okay. David McKenzie, thank you so much for that reporting. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis kicking off his campaign in Iowa today. Recent polling actually shows him neck and neck in the state with another candidate who will also be making a stop there this week. We're live in Des Moines. He's taken the side of Disney uh, in our fight down here in Florida. I'm standing for parents. I'm standing for children. And I think a multi-billion dollar uh, company that sexualizes children is not consistent with the values of Florida or the values of a place like Iowa. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis there. He is in Iowa today where he's kickstarting a multi-stop tour in the state. The governor's expected sales pitch. He's the guy more likely to win the Iowa caucuses, more likely to win than Donald Trump. Of course, though, he's not the only one hoping to best the former president there. Several of the other 2024 presidential candidates, including Trump himself, but also Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, and other prominent Republicans will also be visiting the Hawkeye State. We are officially in full swing here, my friends. Joining us now for a closer look at how Iowa voters really feel about it all, politics reporter at the Iowa Capitol Dispatch, Robin Opsal. Robin, great to see you this morning. Um, DeSantis's pitch here, I'm the guy who can win. How is that sitting with Iowa voters? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something some uh, some voters are very interested in. After the 2020 election, some people are looking for an alternative to Donald Trump, who, at least in the most recent Iowa polling, remains at the top of the list. So many people who agree with um, some of the politics of DeSantis are looking at alternatives, and DeSantis is a front runner as well. One of the interesting things is that Republican voters uh, in Iowa know Trump. They know him well, obviously. You know, they haven't been governed by Governor Ron DeSantis. Only the people of Florida have. What have you been hearing from voters there, Republican voters, about what their main questions are about Ron DeSantis? Of course, Ron DeSantis's track record is somewhat similar to Governor Kim Reynolds, a Republican here in Iowa, and they have had a relationship they had an event earlier this year together. I think people are looking at his track record favorably if they're fans of Kim Reynolds, who is quite popular among Iowa Republicans right now. But I think heading into the 2024 race, it's more of a question of if DeSantis will be a better choice to defeat Biden than President, former President Donald Trump. 
And that's part of what he's starting to hit on, uh, being a better choice mm -hmm. to defeat Biden. But I wonder, because we know that primary voters um, or the caucuses, as we should say, in Iowa, sometimes you get a different a different terms of engagement from voters as you would, of course, in a general election. So beating Biden in a general is one thing. But, of course, being victorious in these early contests is yet another. How do the culture wars play in Iowa that Ron DeSantis is really doubling down in and pointing at as big wins in his state? Is that what is most important? It'll be interesting to see play out. This is something that has been a big deal in Iowa in the past few months with our own legislative session, passing something that Democrats have said are cultural war issues in terms of certain subjects in schools, uh, banning uh, HRT, hormone therapy for minors, things like that, that DeSantis has done in Florida as well. However, I think that there is a concern that some of the people who don't want to vote for Trump again in the caucuses are looking for someone less controversial. So that's something they're weighing for. You know, these are big issues in the Republican Party, but also is it going to be too far for a general election? Is there recent polling that shows how they square up? Because what I'm looking at is from March and it found Trump and DeSantis were neck and neck with Iowa Republicans, but that Trump's numbers had fallen from June of the previous year. Anything more recent that tells you where we are? No, that's the most recent I have as well. It's just something that talking with voters, uh, having been to DeSantis and Trump events, neither of them are very like anti one another or on that different of sides, but it's people, you know, Iowans take their role seriously as person in the nation state and trying to evaluate. <laughs> they, they take it very seriously. Be There's an engagement factor, too, and a lot's been made of how Ron DeSantis mm. is or is not engaging with voters, is or is not engaging with the media in interviews. How important is that to voters, that they get a real sense of who he is? Because as Poppy pointed out, they feel very comfortable, many voters, with Donald Trump because they know who he is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's sort of, um, you know, one of the charms that people point to of the Iowa caucuses is it kind of forces people to go out, shake hands, have these more intimate personal events that you need to talk to individuals and prove on a, you know, even just person to person basis that you're a good choice for for them to caucus for because it is a smaller state. Uh, and I think that's something that he's holding some events. He's holding a, an event at his church tonight. Uh, he's probably going to do the retail politics along with the big 2024 uh, candidate pool who will be here in the next few days. Busy few days uh, coming up, which, of course, kicks off several very busy months ahead. Robin, good to have you here this morning. Thanks, Thank Robin. you. Thank you. Well, just ahead, the suspect in the disappearance, Natalie Holloway, wants more security in prison. Joran Vandersloot's attorney says he's being beaten behind bars, something the Peruvian prison denies. We have the latest developments on that case ahead. Welcome back. We're just a few hours away from opening statements beginning today in the trial of the man accused of killing 11 people at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. You will remember this. It happened in 2018 and according to the Anti-Defamation League was the deadliest anti-Semitic attack ever in the United States. Now, years later, federal prosecutors are calling for the death penalty. The verdict would have to be unanimous, but it is what many of the victim's family members say they want. Our Danny Friedman reports from Pittsburgh. Four down in the atrium, DOA at this time. 
Four and a half years after the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history, a jury will finally hear opening statements in the trial of the alleged gunman in the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting massacre. After a lengthy jury selection which started in April, 12 jurors and six alternates were seated. Questioning focused primarily on whether these men and women could sentence the suspect, Robert Bowers, to death if he's found guilty of killing 11 Jewish worshipers. I don't think I could have ever anticipated the intensity of this jury selection. Throughout the process, family members of victims have watched Bowers from across the courtroom without handcuffs and dressed in collared shirts while speaking with attorneys. On the morning of October 27, 2018, prosecutors say Bowers walked up to the Tree of Life Synagogue and opened fire. Members of three congregations were worshiping there at the time. It's a very horrific crime scene. It's one of the worst that I've seen. Federal prosecutors say Bowers entered the building and intentionally shot people praying while expressing his desire to kill Jews. He now faces 63 felony counts, 22 of which are punishable by death. His defense team has offered a guilty plea in exchange for taking capital punishment off the table, and two of the congregations who were impacted asked the Justice Department in 2019 to accept a life-in-prison plea. But prosecutors were unswayed and are still fighting for execution. And families of nine victims asked Attorney General Merrick Garland to keep the death penalty on the table, calling anything less a grave injustice. The death penalty must apply to vindicate justice and to offer some measure of deterrence from horrific hate crimes happening again and again. For us, I think 1027 is Pittsburgh's version of 9-11. It's a day that really shook the foundation of who we were as a community. Ryan Schreiber is the president and CEO of the JCC of Greater Pittsburgh, which served as a makeshift command post after the shooting. He says Jewish life here has continued and persevered after the attack. Do you know at this point what justice looks like? I don't. I know that it is going to be grueling for those families that lost loved ones for a process that has taken four and a half years to get here and will take a number of months to go. But they're, they're also stronger together and they do not feel like they have to take that journey by themselves. So after five weeks of jury selection, nearly five years since that deadly attack, this trial is ready to start in just a few hours at 9 a.m. And our CNN team will be inside that courtroom through the duration of this trial to report all the news to you. Poppy? Danny, thank you very much. Peru's National Penitentiary Institute is now denying a news report that the prime suspect in the 2005 disappearance of Natalie Holloway was beaten in prison. An attorney for Joran van der Sloot telling ABC News his client was, quote, severely beaten and also said he's petitioned for Vandersloot to be moved to another facility. CNN's Jean Casara is joining us now. She's been following all of these developments. It's interesting to the timing here, Jean, given this looming extradition to the United States. What more do we know about They're these right in the midst of the paperwork, yeah. we understand right now. Well, Maximo Altez, he has been the attorney for Joran Vandersloot from the very beginning. And so he was telling ABC News that his client was severely beaten, that he's currently in the medic area of this maximum security prison in Peru. It's about 24 hours away from Lima. It is very, very remote. But he is asking the attorney for him to be removed to another maximum security prison as soon as possible. But the Penitentiary Institute of Peru is telling CNN this is not true. He was not beaten. He was not attacked. 
Let me tell you about the prisons in Peru, because I was there at Castro Castro, which was the original maximum security prison that Joran van der Sloot was at for the first few years um, before his trial and then immediately after his trial. Everyone can wear street clothes. And so because of that, look at that knife. See that knife? That was a prisoner in his cell, and he was trying to saw his way out of the cell. Because they were street clothes, they're not supposed to carry weapons, but you can, you can easily carry and weapons. And they don't check, they don't pat them down, they don't check their pockets. I didn't see it. Um, of course, they try to maintain order. But Maximo Altez, the attorney for Joran Vandersloot, does not think it's because of what's happening, the, the deportation. He thinks that it is, be the extradition, it, he thinks it is because of the gang activity in the prisons. Hmm. The question this morning for, for everyone who has been seeking justice in this for a long time is, could this impact the extradition? Well, how severely beaten is he, if he is beaten? But let's talk about justice. Do you know what today is? Today is May 30th, and this is so ironic. May 30th, the very last day Natalie Holloway was ever seen alive. It's believed she was murdered on the 30th of May. Stephanie Flores in Peru, she was murdered on May 30th. The same day. The same day, years later. It's the anniversary of both of their deaths. And now this? It's a bit chilling, actually. Yes. Jean, appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, to basketball now. They just couldn't handle the heat. Miami defeats oh. Boston in game seven. Oh, they're headed to the NBA finals. Sorry to the Celtics fans. Taking this great crowd out of this ball game as well. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. They stand eye to eye with history, and they did not blink. The Heat are going to the NBA Finals. Quite a night for the Miami Heat. Beat out Boston and the Celtics. They are headed, as you just heard, to the NBA Finals. The Heat started the Eastern Conference matchup with a dominating 3-0 run, but lost three games in a row. Made that comeback in Game 7 last night, beating Boston by 19 points. Miami fans <laughs> brought out the pots and the pans to celebrate the big win. It will be a while before they can cheer on their team in person, though. The Heat now head to Denver to take on the Nuggets in the finals. Our Omar Jimenez is live in Boston. How are they coping? How are they doing this morning? Uh, look, <laughs> in short, uh, not great. Coming into this game, I mean, there had been 150 attempts to come back from an 0-3 deficit and 150 fails. Now there have been 151. And the Celtics, of course, on the wrong side of that. They, they really just couldn't get it going uh, from the beginning in any consistent way over the course of this game. And any momentum they got seemed to be completely met with an earth or soul-shattering three from the Miami Heat on their side. Take a listen to some of these fans as we spoke to them after the game ended. How are you guys feeling right now? Pretty terrible, honestly. Jalen Brown is leaving. He says the fans hate him. Houston's going to give him the money and JB's leaving. Mark my word. I just wanted to say on behalf of Boston, I'm, I wish my city had responded better. And look, after a loss like this, everybody is making theories about where players are going to go, what coaches need to do, and things like that. I think we heard a lot of that from fans. But let's not forget, let's not discount the Miami Heat here. Give them credit for what they did. You heard Kevin Harlan say they went eye to eye with history, and they did not 
blink here. They made their own history, becoming the first play-in team to make it to the NBA Finals and beating a number one seed along the way, and now the number two seed, Boston Celtics. Take a listen to Miami Heat's star player, Jimmy Butler, uh, after the game. I'm just confident. I know the work that we all put into it, so I know what we're capable of. But nobody's satisfied. We haven't done anything. Um, we don't play just to win the Eastern Conference. We play to win the whole thing. Everybody's confidence is so high. We got belief that we can do something incredibly special. So we're going to um, hit the ground running when we get to Denver. And uh, I like our chances. So they go on to play the number one seed Denver Nuggets. They said they had their bags packed for Denver and not to return to Miami. And they're capitalizing on that planning ahead. Mm. Okay, Omar, thank you, friend. Game one, Heat versus Nuggets. That is Thursday night, 8.30 p.m. CNN This Morning continues right now. At least nine people were wounded, including three children, after shooting broke out in Hollywood Beach, Florida. Employees and customers tried to run toward the bathrooms and just waited. An altercation with guns with thousands of people around them is beyond reckless. These that were involved will be held accountable. Volodymyr Zelensky says he has decided a date for the long-awaited counteroffensive by Ukrainian forces. And from the Moscow mayor that several buildings sustained insignificant damage as a result of what he says were drone attacks. Russia wants to follow the path of evil to the end. The world must see that terror is losing. President Biden saying bipartisan deal to raise the debt ceiling and avoid the nation's first ever default will make it across the finish line. I have some serious concerns about the deal. My team and I are still reviewing it. We are a divided government right now and we had to compromise. House lawmakers have now delivered articles of impeachment against Attorney General Ken Paxton to the state Senate. Every politician who supports this will inflict lasting damage. This is going to be the beginning of the end of his criminal reign, or God help us. The Vegas Golden Knights to the Stanley Cup final for the second time in their six-year history. Now they will play the Florida Panthers. It's a lot of fun coming to the rink and being with them every day. You have to enjoy the moment, stay in the moment. They've earned it, and if they don't, the coaches will. Well, good morning, everyone. It is the top of the hour, 7 a.m. Eastern, here with my friend Erica Hill. Good morning. Good morning. Did you you know all this stuff about basketball you've been telling me all morning? Did I, you watch? Uh, no, I didn't watch. Girl, I was in bed at 7.30, <laughs> and it was amazing. That is amazing. I will take that over an NBA playoff game any night. But we'll get to the NBA finals ahead in a little bit. But this morning we do begin with very disturbing news. Nine people this morning are recovering after a mass shooting sent them running for their lives. This happened near the beach in Hollywood, Florida. New surveillance video shows the crowds on the boardwalk running as the gunfire rang out. The victims range in age from just 1 to 65. Police say one person has been detained. A manhunt is currently underway for a second suspect. Let's begin with our Carlos Suarez. He is live in Hollywood, Florida with more. I mean, one of the victims, a one-year-old. That's exactly right, uh, Poppy and Erica. Good morning. So Hollywood uh, police out here are not saying a whole lot about their investigation. They have said that they've identified two people believed to be tied to the shooting. They said that this entire incident was a result of an argument between two groups of people when someone pulled out a gun and opened fire. The Broadwalk out here is lined with restaurants, hotels, and bars. It is where thousands of folks had gathered to celebrate the Memorial Day holiday, and it is where cameras 
captured that shooting a little before seven o'clock yesterday. In the video, you can see these crowds of folks just running for safety after they heard the gunshots. Videos that were posted on social media showed some of the injured being treated on the sand. Now, according to Hollywood police, they had a number of officers in the area in anticipation of these large crowds. And so they were able to get a lot of these folks that were hurt to a hospital. Here now is the mayor of Hollywood talking about what happened. People come to a holiday, uh, enjoy a holiday uh, weekend on the beach uh, with their families and to have people in complete reckless disregard of the safety of, of the public and to have an altercation with guns in a public setting with thousands of people around them is uh, beyond reckless. All right, so authorities say that one person has been detained. It is still unclear at this hour exactly what these two groups of people were fighting over. Of the nine people that were shot, we're told that four of them are minors, including that one-year-old baby. The good news, Poppy and Erica, is that all nine of these people that were shot are recovering in a hospital, and they're expected to be okay. We certainly hope they make a fast recovery. Carlos, thank you. Overnight, the Russian capital getting a firsthand sense of war after an alleged drone attack. Uh, so you can see here a plume of smoke rising. There you go. Um, as you watch this, you can also see, if you look carefully, you can see a drone actually flying. There it is. Over the city. You hear a man. See him there with his finger pointing it at it out of his window. Uh, and then here, what appears to be a fragment of a drowned drone. Russian state media says two people were injured in Moscow. Three residential buildings were damaged in that attack. Russian military officials are blaming Ukraine. It is something, though, that Ukraine denies. The attack, of course, though, comes just hours after yet another aerial assault on Kyiv. Ukrainian officials say one woman was killed, 13 others injured. CNN's Frederick Plykin is live in Kyiv this morning for us with more. Um, so, Fred, we're going to get to what happened overnight in Kyiv, but can you just bring us up to speed a little bit on what you're hearing about that attack in Moscow? Yeah, I, I am hearing actually that the folks in Moscow certainly are pretty concerned about what happened there and those residential buildings that apparently uh, were hit, they're actually in the sort of southern end of the Russian capital. And what the Russians are saying is that in total, there were eight UAVs or eight drones that were involved in this. And they say that three of them were taken down by electronic countermeasures. Essentially, they stopped the drones electronically. They went off course and then they crashed into open areas, uh, most of them. And they also said that they had to shoot five of them down with their air defense system. And of course, as you can imagine, that's definitely not something that the Russians are used to, certainly something that it's a first time for them. You guys have mentioned the Russians are blaming Kiev for this. The Ukrainians are saying it wasn't them, but they also say they believe incidents like this will happen again in the future. So that's the reality there in Moscow. Meantime, you are at the scene of yet another mm. drone strike there in Kiev. Yeah. What more do we know about that strike and, and what's the damage there on the ground? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? It was quite a night here in Kiev. I have to say, throughout hours of this night, there were these Shahed drones, which are Iranian-made drones that the Russians use, flying over the Ukrainian capital with the Ukrainians trying to shoot them down. In fact, the building that you see behind me is substantially damaged. This is the area where one woman was actually killed inside that building by debris falling from a drone that was actually shot down. And this is not the first time. In the past couple of days, there have been several of these kinds of attacks, obviously terrifying the local population here. Here's what happened.
terrified children running for their lives as Russia unleashed another massive aerial attack on Ukrainian cities. But Ukraine says its air defense managed to shoot down all the ballistic missiles fired at the capital, Kiev. And now Ukraine's forces seem nearly ready for their own much-anticipated counter-offensive. This weekend, Ukraine's top general, Valery Zaluzhny, releasing this video showing troops gearing up for battle and showcasing modern Western weapons with a clear message, it's time to take back what's ours. And that's what these guys are training for. This is a unit of the offensive guard from Ukraine's interior ministry. We have a clear motivation, the commander says. We defend our lands. This is our nation, our homeland. The offensive guard is mustering tens of thousands of troops, they say, training to storm trenches and evacuate casualties, which they know they're bound to have in the tough battles ahead. What these guys are practicing here, no doubt, will become a reality for the Ukrainian armed forces very soon, as Kiev says it will start a massive counteroffensive to take back all of their territory, including Crimea. The Ukrainians already seem to be stepping up strikes on possible Russian supply lines in occupied areas. Russian-installed officials claiming Ukrainian missile attacks against targets around Berdyansk and Mariupol in southeastern Ukraine in the past days. It's just the beginning, a top advisor to Ukraine's presidency tells me. Everything that is happening now is a precursor for a counterattack, a necessary precursor where the intensity of fire increases. And he lays out bold aims for the counteroffensive. It will end undoubtedly on the borders of Ukraine as they were in 1991 with the deoccupation of Crimea and with the beginning of a massive process of transformation of Russia's political system. But for now, resilience remains key for the people in Ukraine's cities. These newlyweds had just tied the knot and were on their way to their celebration when the air raid sirens went off. So they just continued to celebrate in the bomb shelter, vowing not to let Russian rockets ruin the best day of their lives. So as you guys can see, a lot of resilience here on the part of the local population. Of course, nevertheless, these strikes do frighten a lot of people. I was able to speak to uh, the mayor of Kiev just a couple of minutes ago, and he called the strikes that happened here nothing more than terrorism. Erica? It is really something, and a reminder, too, with that wedding of, of how life is continuing despite all of these horrors. Fred, really appreciate it. Thank you. Meantime, back here at home, the debt limit deal about to face a crucial hurdle on Capitol Hill today. The powerful House Rules Committee is set to decide if the bill will even make it to the House floor. Some of the deal's fiercest Republican opponents are on this committee. Congressman Ralph Norman and Chip Roy. These are the same hardliners that Speaker Kevin McCarthy agreed to put on the Rules Committee in a deal to win the speakership back in January. Listen to what Congressman Roy told Fox News ahead of today's meeting. I'm going to be making that loud and clear to my Republican colleagues that this is not a deal that we should be taking. The whole point of the Rules Committee was to say that we were going to have a power sharing where we had a representation of the entire conference. And I'm not thrilled with this bill right now, so I'm not going into the Rules Committee with a very positive view towards this bill. CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox is tracking the latest on Capitol Hill. Lauren, good morning to you. Uh, so McCarthy wants this vote tomorrow. They've got a sort of deadline from Treasury of June 5th. This all has to be wrapped up. Where does this go? 
Yeah, this rules committee meeting today is really crucial, Poppy. The makeup of this committee is nine Republicans, four Democrats. And typically the way it works is that conservatives are the ones who get these rules out of the committee and put them on the House floor. That's how it's been happening all year. That's the tradition of this committee, that the majority party is responsible for the rule to get it to the floor. But in this case, we are watching very closely some of those key conservatives, because what you're hearing from Chip Roy is that he's very upset about this legislation. You're hearing the same from Representative Ralph Norman, and we are going to be keeping a close eye on another conservative on that committee, Thomas Massey, and whether or not he becomes the critical tie-breaking vote in this committee today when it comes to getting it out of the rules. So one thing to keep in mind, Earlier this year, when Thomas Massey was asked how he was going to use his position on the Rules Committee, this was back in January, he told my colleague Melanie Zanona, quote, I would be reluctant to try to use the Rules Committee to achieve a legislative outcome, particularly if it doesn't represent a large majority of our caucus. I don't ever intend to use my position on there to hold somebody hostage, to hold legislation hostage. Now, his office is not saying how he is going to vote today in this committee, but obviously that comment back in January, giving some insight into how at least Thomas Massey is viewing his role on this Rules Committee today. If it makes it out of the Rules Committee, we expect it will have the votes it needs to pass on the House floor, with multiple sources telling me that Republicans are confident they could get or are at least locking down about 150 or more Republicans. Poppy? Okay, Lauren, thank you very much. Joining us now, Congressman Brendan Boyle. He's a Democrat from Pennsylvania, the ranking member of the House Budget Committee. And he's also been in close contact with White House negotiators throughout this debt ceiling fight throughout this process. Good to have you with us this morning. Uh, just picking up there where my colleague Lauren Fox left off. Are you concerned at all about the House Rules Committee meeting today? Chip Roy was very clear. This is, in his words, not a deal we should be making. Well, I will be testifying in, in front of the Rules Committee, given that I'm the ranking member of the Budget Committee. Uh, I, I fully expect that those two ultra-right uh, members, uh, Chip Roy and Ralph Norman, will be voting no. Um, even if a third Republican votes no, there is always the possibility that a Democratic member votes yes. So um, certainly I will be uh, very interested as, for, as I'll be testifying for hours and hours, but I am confident that one way or the other, the math will add up and that this bill will be sent to the entire House floor for us to vote on and I believe pass tomorrow. So you believe it will pass, but getting there, let's say gets to the House floor, but you know, you're confident it's going to happen. As you know, uh, fellow members of the, of the Progressive Caucus, the House Progressive Caucus, are not feeling great about it. Congresswoman Jayapal was very clear with my colleague Jake Tapper on Sunday saying, yes, Democrats should be worried here. Uh, Congressman Bowman yesterday telling Wolf he has serious concerns. And as of 12 hours ago, he was still undecided. President Biden yesterday said he doesn't know if he can get progressives on board. Where did things stand this morning? Well, I, look, if um, I had the unilateral ability to write a budget, it wouldn't look exactly like this. There are some provisions in there that I don't agree with. Uh, but when we look in totality at the entire bill, when we look at the number of things, extreme things that Speaker McCarthy and Freedom Caucus or far-right members were pushing, when we look at the prospect of a first-ever default, in American history that would truly be a catastrophic event, I think taken in totality, 
you will see uh, enough Democratic support to make sure this bill passes. So is that your message to progressives? That there's enough well, in here you can deal with? Vote for it? <laughs> well, first, I, I don't uh, tell my colleagues uh, on the Democratic side or Republican side, for that matter, how to vote. I, I respect uh, each one of my colleagues to come at their decision. You know, the toughest vote in Congress is not necessarily on a controversial issue. Uh, the toughest vote is on something um, that you agree with some parts of the bill and you disagree with others. Those are always, for me, the toughest votes. I've spoken to a number of my Democratic colleagues, um, whether they're moderate or progressive or somewhere in between. And I think each of us are wrestling with a piece of legislation that is neither perfect nor awful, but somewhere in between and attempting to arrive at the best decision that reflects mm -hmm. our districts as well as our values. So in those conversations, again, I know you said you're not telling people how to vote, but you are having these conversations. So I would imagine uh, that your colleagues are expressing some of their concerns, as you point out, some of their frustrations. As you're having those conversations, is it your sense that despite some of those reservations, they will in fact be voting for this? I, it depends on, uh, it depends entirely on the individual. Mm -hmm. There certainly is no way to um, kind of uh, with one broad brush paint the entire caucus's view. I will say if there is unanimity, it's on the fact that we're even stuck in this position that just literally a few days before what would be a catastrophic default that we still have not raised the nation's debt ceiling. There's also a frustration on my part and others that we did not take care of this when Democrats had the power to do so uh, for a couple of years. Uh, I think there's a great resolve number of my Democratic colleagues to make sure we are never again stuck in this awful situation. Are you confident that that will happen? That you will never again be stuck in that situation? Yeah, I, I do believe uh, that we are going to learn this lesson. Remember just how dangerous this has been. The most dangerous moment in the debt ceiling since 2011, um, there is a real possibility that this all had gone south had this deal not come together at the very last second. Uh, there's no question that the debt ceiling serves no purpose. It needs to be dramatically reformed. This is an incredibly dysfunctional process that in the end achieves nothing other than avoiding disaster. And I know you've uh, proposed to get rid of it altogether in the past. As we look at where we stand, though, this morning, I found it interesting. Uh, your former colleague, Congressman Max Rose of New York, was with us yesterday morning talking about this deal and the fact that you have people upset on both sides. That in some ways, and I'm paraphrasing here, this shows that it was actually perhaps a healthy negotiation, that this is a true bipartisan deal in many respects, because you don't have one side, you know, winning, if you will, much more than the yeah. other. Is that how you look at it as well? I, I would say that, and it's very unfortunate that Speaker McCarthy conflated the debt ceiling issue, which we absolutely have to raise. We've raised 78 times since 1960. There's no question we have to raise it. He conflated that with what is a normal budget negotiation that would have been taking place in August and September anyway. The reality is with a narrowly Republican House, a narrowly Democratic Senate, and Democratic White House, the budget was never going to be exactly what I would want and exactly what Speaker McCarthy and MAGA Republicans would want. This budget probably reflects uh, that it is somewhere between those two options. Congressman Brendan Boyle, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. That was, Erica, that's really interesting to hear him say, just like we heard Pamela Jayapal tell Jake on Sunday, the Democrats should have done this when they could have, right? And mm -hmm. maybe next yeah. time. Great interview.
ahead, Ron DeSantis about to make his debut on the campaign trail as a presidential candidate after a bit of a glitchy start. He goes to Iowa. Plus, the desperate search for survivors still underway in Iowa after an apartment building partially collapsed. And there is a new report this morning. Rescue teams found a woman alive in that wreckage after she'd been trapped for more than a day. We have those details. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. New this morning, a ninth person we're learning has been rescued from that partially collapsed apartment building in Davenport, Iowa. Uh, we have some new video in here to show you. The Quad City Times says the woman had called her daughter from the fourth floor of the building. She was ultimately rescued by the fire department more than 24 hours after that collapse. Owners of the building are facing demolition orders on the property today. Officials, though, say there are still some people who remain unaccounted for. And so now they may reassess that timeline. Residents also describing the terror they felt as parts of the building just caved in on Sunday. I was sleeping and then I heard a great big noise and I opened up the door to my apartment and it was like daylight, daylight. What was going through my mind was the other people just trapped in there. So scary. That collapse led to a large natural gas leak, water also flooding into the building. So fire officials right now are still trying to determine the cause. So Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is going to sort of launch again, this time in Iowa. He will be there on his campaign tour tonight. DeSantis is set to take take the stage in Des Moines before he crisscrosses the state over the next two days. It's his second trip to Iowa this month, but his first since officially launching last week. And just days from now, the governor plans to hit two more early primary states, New Hampshire and South Carolina. Steve Contorno on the trail. You're in Clive, Iowa this morning, right? What can you tell us about the plans DeSantis has for today? Well, Poppy, as you said, this will be a much more traditional campaign kickoff than the digital launch we saw last week. And it will there'll be our first glimpse into how DeSantis frames his message on the campaign trail. Over the weekend and the days since his launch, he has taken a much more aggressive posture toward Donald Trump than really we have ever seen from him in the past. He accused the, the former president of being bad on the economy, of, of uh, raising the national debt, of his COVID policies, uh, hurting businesses, uh, of passing a, a, a criminal justice reform bill that he said is soft on crime. We have never really seen him go after the former president in these kinds of terms before. But this is the message that he brought to conservative media in all the interviews he has done over the weekend. Whether or not that is the same message that he brings to the campaign trail, that's what we're going to find out tonight, Poppy. Talk about what he's going to do in New Hampshire or South Carolina. Obviously, the early states is what he's hitting. But again, this is really an introduction to voters who weren't on that Twitter Spaces announcement last week about who he is and how he governs. Yeah, and a lot of these voters have already heard of Governor DeSantis. He has really great name recognition recognition for a first-time candidate, but they haven't had a chance yet to really see him in person. And that's so critical to these early voting states, especially the state of New Hampshire, which really expects the candidates to come there and talk to people, kiss babies, go into living rooms, talk to as many voters as possible. So he's going to spend Thursday crisscrossing through New Hampshire. That is a state that is so critical in these in these early contests. You know, it's a state that launched Donald Trump in 2016. And then from there, he'll go to South Carolina, another key early voting state. That state, though, has two Republicans who are already in the race, former governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, 
current Senator Tim Scott. So whether and how DeSantis is able to navigate this growing field, to find a lane for himself in these, in these early primary states, we're going to get a first uh, look at that this week. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Enjoy Iowa. Well, the Texas House is delivering articles of impeachment against Attorney General Ken Paxton to the Texas Senate. And a timeline for the trial has been set. We'll get the latest from Texas. Plus, happening today, an emergency veterinary summit at Churchill Downs, the home, of course, of the Kentucky Derby. This after a dozen horses were euthanized at the track over a one-month span. Those new details just ahead. Lawmakers in the Texas Senate now setting a timeline to hold an impeachment trial against State Attorney General Ken Paxton. That's happening in the coming months, and it'll determine whether Paxton is removed from office. The articles of impeachment were delivered to the Senate on Monday, and that was just two days after the unprecedented move by the GOP-controlled House. Members there voting to impeach Paxton. CNN's Ed Lavendera is live this morning in Dallas. So, Ed, Paxton has been dogged, really, by ethics scandals since taking office in 2014. What happened in the state Senate? Well, it's really kind of the first step to what we're going to see here in Texas as the summer of impeachment. But Ken Paxton has been elected as attorney general three times, but it's clear he's not going to go quietly. A history-making impeachment trial is going forward in the Texas State Senate. I am directed by the House of Representatives to present to the Senate the articles of impeachment preferred against Warren Kenneth Paxton Jr., Attorney General of the state of Texas. The House delivered 20 articles of impeachment to the state Senate Monday evening. 10 of the 20 articles stem from a whistleblower lawsuit filed by four now fired top staffers for the Attorney General. That suit was settled for $3.3 million and a state investigative committee investigation followed. Paxton faces allegations of bribery, abuse of public trust, conspiracy, termination of whistleblowers, misuse of official information and obstruction of justice, among other charges. The trial will start by August 28th and be presided over by the Lieutenant Governor, Dan Patrick. This is about facts and this is about evidence. And at the end of the day, my colleagues and I will not stand for public corruption, and that's why we're proceeding to a trial in the Texas Senate. Paxton denies any wrongdoing and has railed against the investigation. The fact that I was prohibited from presenting evidence to defend myself reveals that this shameful process was curated from the start as an act of political retribution. According to the lead impeachment manager, Paxton will be able to participate in the trial, but there are already concerns Paxton could be trying to intimidate elected officials. Several members of this House, while on the floor of this House doing the state business, received telephone calls from General Paxton personally threatening them with political consequences in their next election. Paxton is temporarily suspended from his duties and Texas Governor Greg Abbott can appoint a replacement, but Abbott has yet to publicly comment on the matter. Former President Trump did speak out in defense of Paxton, He's a great man. writing in a Truth Social post that the impeachment vote was unfair. Trump's words held no sway in the Republican majority House, who still went ahead and voted to impeach the former president's longtime ally. We all love Ken Paxton around these parts, right? Supporters of the pair did gather outside a courthouse in Texas on Monday to voice their support. We cannot continue on with this. The people have to stand up against tyranny. 
And so the fate of Ken Paxson will rest later this summer in the hands of 31 state senators. Twelve of those are Democrats. They would need at least nine Republicans to vote him, uh, convict him and, and push him out of office. And a reminder that one of those senators is Ken Paxson's own wife. There are calls for her to recuse herself, but so far she has not said what she is going to do. Erica? Be interesting to see uh, if she decides to, in fact, recuse herself or not. Ed, really appreciate it. Thanks. Absolutely fascinating. All right, happening today, horse racing regulating officials are holding an emergency veterinary summit after an unusually high number of horse deaths at Churchill Downs, of course, the home of the Kentucky Derby. Veterinary officials from Churchill Downs and the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission will meet after 12 horses died, 12 of them in a month at the track since April 27th. The Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority will also dispatch experts to analyze Churchill Downs racing and training surfaces. One doctor is calling this the most important virus you have never heard of. That is exactly why we're gonna bring you up to speed in a CNN Medical Report just ahead. Plus $38.8 billion, that is how much cash the Treasury Department has on hand this morning. We'll tell you which people actually have more money than the US Treasury coffers right now as we get closer to the default deadline. Welcome back. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are rushing to sell this debt limit deal to their respective parties with just days until the United States Treasury runs out of money to pay our bills that are due. So here's the number, $38.8 billion. That is how much cash the Treasury Department had on hand as of last Thursday. That's our latest count. It's down from nearly $240 billion at the start of the month when the coffers were relatively flush from April tax collections. To give you a sense of how empty Treasury cash coffer is $38.8 billion is lower than the net worth of more than two dozen of the world's wealthiest people, including Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Mark Zuckerberg, and Nike co-founder Phil Knight. So joining us now, Chief Economist at Moody's Analytics, Mark Sandy. Sorry you're not on that list, Mark, but we do appreciate your brain <laughs> this morning on all of this. I, look, I think it's interesting. Your prediction um, and your analysis before this deal got reached was it if we default, it would kill 7 million jobs. It would really hurt the U.S. economy. But now what? If this thing goes through as written, as a legislative text is this morning, what does that mean for the U.S. economy? Well, Poppy, yeah, uh, I tried that and I might. Uh, $30 billion feels like Billion. A, a long way from here where I am. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, uh, you know, I'll have to say uh, from the uh, perspective of what it means for the economy, this deal, if it gets through Congress, and I think it will, uh, it's, it's pretty good, about as good as we can expect. I mean, given all the drama and Sturm and Drang and all the things that are going on here, and all the you know darker scenarios that could have unfolded. I'll I'll take this one. Uh, of course, the the biggest impact will come from the spending cuts. But if you do a little bit of arithmetic, you know it's probably going to shave you know no more than one hundred fifty thousand jobs from what it would have been otherwise. And that sounds like a lot of jobs, and it is. But just for mm -hmm. context, the U.S. economy creates about two, it's been creating about two hundred fifty thousand jobs per month. It'll raise the unemployment rate about about a tenth of a percent. It's not great. I mean, right. the economy is weak. Yeah, I would, if I were king, I wouldn't have done this the way it's it's been done. Obviously, but given all the things that have gone on here, I'll take it. Can it achieve a soft landing, avoid a recession? 
I, I think so. You know, the economy is showing uh, just incredible resilience. Uh, consumers are hanging tough. Uh, they're doing their part. They're not spending with abandon, but they're doing what they need to do to keep the economy moving forward. And businesses are very reluctant to lay off workers. We've seen some pickup in layoffs uh, yeah. in the tech sector and financial service, but generally, uh, you know, they've been low. And uh, I think the economy has enough resilience to digest this. Uh, you know, obviously, again, risks are high. Nothing else can go wrong. But if nothing else goes wrong, I think we can make it our way through without a recession, yes. I, I think it's, oh, that's great news. I think it's really interesting to think about this in the context of 2011, sort of the last time we were on the brink and the impact it had on the economy. It was such a different time for the economy. Interest rates were near zero. Unemployment was really high at 9%. It was different. And it was that time that uh, now Harvard economist Jason Furman, who was deputy director of President Obama's National Economic Council, uh, was dealing with these issues. But what's interesting is that he tells The New York Times this morning that all of this could actually help the Fed's fight on inflation. He says, from a macroeconomic perspective, this deal is a small help because the economy still needs cooling off and takes pressure off interest rates. Do you agree? Can it help? Uh well, the good the good news is that uh, monetary policy, what the Fed does, and fiscal policy, what the lawmakers are doing now, are at least working in the right direction. You know, they're working to kind of slow things down, to cool things off, to get inflation back to the Fed's target, and and we need that that to occur so that the Fed doesn't need to raise rates more. And if because if they do, then in all likelihood we would go into recession. So in that sense, I agree. But. You know, my sense is the Fed's done enough already. Uh, they've raised rates very aggressively over the past more than a year. We don't need any more restraint. And any more restraint we add to the economy, and of course, this debt limit deal will add some restraint, okay. you know, raises the risk that we go into recession. So, you know, I, I, I don't want to cut too fine a, a hair here, but, you know, my sense is that uh, we, we, we certainly don't need this. You have been making the argument, you made it to us last week when you were here in studio, that it's just time to basically get rid of the debt limit. President Biden was asked about that essentially this weekend as well, and he still doesn't like that idea. Listen to what he said. No, I, I think it would cause more controversy getting rid of the debt limit, although I do, I am exploring the idea that we would, uh, at a later date, a year or two from now, decide whether or not the 14th Amendment, how that actually would impact on whether or not you need to do the debt limit every year. But that's another day. Thank you, Mr. President. He had previously called it irresponsible to not have a debt ceiling. Now he says it would cause more controversy to get rid of the debt limit. But you still think it's the most prudent path ahead? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't see any benefit to this, uh, to the debt limit. I mean, it just creates a lot of drama and, you know, damage. I mean, we've been, Poppy, you and I have been talking about this now for three, four weeks. And the whole world is, and we're spending all this energy on this for, you know, exactly what? I mean, what are we accomplishing here? We're not solving our long-term fiscal issues. And so uh, I think this time could have been better spent. So I, I would do away with it in an instant. No, ha, now, uh, there's something has to follow, right? We need some kind of budget process so that the uh, uh, Republicans and Democrats can come together and figure out what we need to do for, the, for our long-run fiscal health. But uh, the debt limit, as we can see, is not the way to go. So, yeah, I, I do away with that in an instant. All right, Mark Zandi, appreciate it. Thanks very much. And some good news. If we can get this thing through, maybe not a recession, maybe a soft landing. That's his headline. All right, in our next hour, we'll speak with Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell. Where does she stand on this deal? 
the most important virus you have never heard of. This morning, the CDC is warning cases of that virus. It's the human metanumovirus, surged about 36% more than usual this spring. And it could be a little bit of a doozy. Doctors say it can cause just as much misery as the flu and RSV. CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell is here. So they're concerned. How concerned should we be? What should we know about this virus? Yeah, so, you know, if you've ever taken a COVID test and it's been negative, but you've got all these symptoms, I've done this so many times with my kids when I've caught something they got in school, it could be this human metanumavirus. And we really don't know that much about it. A lot of people haven't heard of it, but can cause a lot of the same symptoms, these hacking coughs, fevers, shortness of breath, runny nose, and in really severe cases, bronchitis and pneumonia. So it can be very dangerous for young children and for older people. We did see this spike in the spring, 36% higher than the seasonal averages before COVID. So it's getting disrupted the same way we've seen a number of respiratory viruses sort of change their behaviors as a result of the pandemic. And they say it's something we should keep an eye on. How dangerous? So for children under five, the estimates for 2018 was that there were more than 14 million infections worldwide, 600,000 hospitalizations among these little kids, and 16,000 deaths. They're worse in developing countries, but this is a problem. The pharmaceutical industry has not devoted a lot of resources to developing vaccines. Moderna is one company that's working on it. I spoke with the CEO, and he pointed out the toll that they see, particularly in toddlers, as one reason they're trying to develop a vaccine for it. Interesting. I appreciate it. Thanks, Meg. Thank you, guys. It's been called quite the cruise from hell. That's a term that people are using, and you'll see why in a minute, because this Carnival cruise ship was rocked by a powerful storm, and then hallways have been flooded with water and debris, terrified passengers reaching for their life preservers. One of those passengers joins us with their experience next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A dream vacation in the Bahamas quickly became a living nightmare for cruise passengers after severe weather violently rocked the carnival sunshine. The ship was returning to South Carolina over the weekend when it hit rough seas, rough putting it mildly, (sighs) leaving passengers frightened, wondering if they would make it back home. Uh, This, of course, according to one of our next guests, Bill Hassler, who was there for all of the fun. Not so sure it was fun. Let's show you this video that he shot. You can see all sorts of debris being tossed around the ship. Also water rushing into hallways and rooms. Carnival said this in a statement, quote, Carnival Sunshine's return to Charleston was impacted by the weather and rough seas on Saturday. The weather's prolonged impact on the Charleston area delayed the ship's arrival on Sunday. And as a result, the next voyage's embarkation was also delayed. We appreciate the patience and understanding of all our guests. Carnival Sunshine is now sailing on its next cruise. Well, Bill Hassler was on that ship and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. I told you I grew up going on cruises. Never, never did I see something like this. What was it like to live through? Uh, actually, I'm surprised I'm still alive. Really? Yeah, it's, it was that bad. It's... Uh... I've seen the looks on people's face when um, I was a crane operator in New York City and uh, I was running a locomotive for the Sandhogs and I flipped the train over and slid it 650 feet on its roof. And when I cr- climbed out of that train, the look of fear and death, they thought I, it was like I seen ghosts, like they seen ghosts. And when I got off the ship at six, seven o'clock Saturday evening, when it was supposed to dock at eight in the morning, the look of that look that I seen on these Sandhogs faces years ago was the same look I seen on all these people coming off the ship, like they were just white. 
way this goes. You said at one point it seemed like Carnival was playing God with your lives. Yeah, exactly. I mean, why would you sail into this storm with 80 mile an hour plus winds? I mean, who does that? I mean, I was a crane operator and everybody that worked around me, around a crane or any equipment I was on, their lives were in my hands. So when the winds were bad or the weather was bad, we'd shut the job down and not work for safety. What were they thinking? Well, what do you think they should have done? Turn around? I think around? they should have stayed down in port in the Bahamas, waited a day for the storm to subside a little bit and then go. Or when they got into the storm, why didn't they go further out into the ocean to get to the other side of it, you know, to the backside? How, how accessible in the statement, you know, which Poppy just shared, they thanked you for your patience and your understanding. How much communication was there as all of this was happening? Was there information on the loudspeakers? Were you told to go into certain areas? No, very little. Um, I don't even think the crew knew what they were doing. I don't think they were trained enough for a situation like that. They were actually at one point scavenging to get the life uh, boats ready to throw us out into the sea with 40 plus foot waves I don't even know how you would even get in a lifeboat. If that thing went down, we were all dead. Wow. Yeah. At one point, a wave hit my window and broke my window and water was coming in. Coming into the boat and into your stateroom? Yes. What did you do at that point? Uh, put on my life preserver. You did? <laughs> yeah, I actually fell asleep at one point for a little while with my life preserver on. You heard us read Carnival's statement. I, I wonder if you want something else from them. I mean, it sounds like you're very concerned that preparations weren't made and safety wasn't prioritized. They shouldn't have went through that storm and they need to be held accountable. What does that look like to you? Um, as, meaning as far as what? Well, just not in terms of just you being compensated for that, oh, no, but do I, you fear that could happen again? Oh yeah, I mean, listen, it was like trip. a coin toss for them and they got lucky. Maybe the next time they won't be as lucky, you know? What do you think should then, you know, just to follow up on Poppy's point there, what should change? What do you want to see change? There's got to be different laws about heading into storms, especially when you're not in one. How do you sail out of sun into a storm like that? It made no sense. Yeah. We're glad you're okay. Yeah. But I'm sure it's traumatizing and it's probably all just starting to like when, soak in, right? When I got home Sunday night, I had to crack open a beer <laughs> and think about it and I started shaking. Really? Because... It just set in like that. Like, I couldn't even believe I'm still here. Like, you know, when they say kiss the ground, yeah, kiss the ground. <laughs> yeah. And you're staying on dry land for a while. Yeah. yeah. Uh, staying away from the ocean. <laughs> We're so glad you're OK. okay. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Of course, we welcome um, anyone from Carnival to join us in the program. Talk about that if changes are coming as well. And CNN This Morning continues right now. What, Roma? All right, so take a look at that. Good morning, everyone. It is 8 a.m. Eastern, and we have a lot of news to get to. I'm here with Erica Hill. We're glad you're with us. What you just saw was a drone flying over Moscow, the Kremlin accusing Ukraine of launching an attack on the Russian capital with drones. The Ukrainians are denying any direct involvement. A manhunt is underway in Mississippi after another jailbreak at the same facility where a group of inmates escaped just weeks ago. And the Miami Heat are heading to the NBA Finals to face the Denver Nuggets after dominating the Boston Celtics in Game 7. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now.
We begin this hour on Capitol Hill, where the debt limit deal is about to face a crucial hurdle today. The powerful House Rules Committee set to hold a make-or-break vote that could potentially tank this bill before it even reaches the floor. Some of the loudest Republican opponents of the deal are on this committee, among them Congressmen Ralph Norman and Chip Roy. Those are the same hardliners who Speaker Kevin McCarthy agreed to put on the committee as part of his deal to win the speakership back in January. Well, here's where Congressman Roy stands. This is what he told Fox News ahead of today's meeting. I'm going to be making that loud and clear to my Republican colleagues that this is not a deal that we should be taking. The whole point of the Rules Committee was to say that we were going to have a power sharing where we had a representation of the entire conference. And I'm not thrilled with this bill right now, so I'm not going into the Rules Committee with a very positive view towards this bill. Kevin's a friend. I think the Republican Party is best when we're unified, but not for the sake of unity. Not for the sake of unity. On the other side of the aisle, President Biden is trying to convince progressives and other skeptical Democrats to vote yes. Look, you know I never say I'm confident what the Congress will do, but I feel very good about it. I've spoken to a number of the members. President. The House Democrats who have reservations about this uh, compromise bill. Talk to me. Let's bring in House Democratic Congresswoman who has been critical of the deal, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of Michigan. Congresswoman, good morning. Good morning to both of you. We'll get into the energy components of it in a moment. That's a big deal to you, obviously. But we just saw moments ago your Republican counterpart, Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina, just said she's going to vote no. How are you going to vote on this compromise debt limit deal? You know, I'm still in undecided. Uh, we cannot not pay our bills. We can not. I, I, I think many of us right now are feeling, are very angry that we have been held hostage, that we find ourselves in this situation. I do not believe compromise is a dirty word, but we're still, I spent my entire day yesterday in meetings with various White House officials and then other colleagues trying to understand what the implications were. So I'm going to go back to the Hill uh, today, going to meet with a lot of my colleagues and and uh, get to where we need to go. I know we have to pay our bills. That is probably the most overriding uh, thing driving me. But as I said yesterday, I, there are parts of this bill that I would not vote yeah. for if they were a freestanding bill. And the whole process is not one that is the way that the government should operate. We need regular order. That, to me, Congresswoman, sounds like a very reluctant yes at this point. Am I reading that right? I'm not going to tell you one way or the other because uh, I'm going to keep asking questions. And if mm -hmm. I learn anything that's very disturbing today, I've asked right. some, you know, I want to understand how precedent setting this bill is. Mm. How is this going to impact future bills? What are those domestic spending cuts? What are those programs really going to cut? Mm -hmm. Are seniors going to be hurt? And there are some real questions that I have. So, um, you know, I, it, it, I think undecided is probably the safest place to okay. put me. Okay. Um, I thought it was really telling how both uh, Speaker McCarthy, but also one of his top Republican negotiators on this, Dusty Johnson, characterized this bill over the last few days. Here's what they said. There were no wins for Democrats. There is nothing after the passage of this bill that will be more liberal or more progressive than it is today. It's a remarkable conservative accomplishment. Right now, the Democrats are very upset. The one thing Hakeem told me, there's nothing in the bill for them. There's not one thing in the bill for Democrats. Do you agree with that assessment? 
Look, you know, most of the briefings that I've been in, people have talked about how much worse it could have been. I don't think that's the way to talk about a bill, right. by the way. We are talking about life impacting of all Americans. It shouldn't be whether Democrats win or, or right. Republicans lost. This should be about how do we deliver for the American people. Quite frankly, even the sound bites are beginning to bother me. We need to get back to the days where people talked. We get to regular order. We remember that the job we have to do is to protect the country that we all represent. And there are things in here that are really, uh, I, I, I don't know what the outcome could be down the road, especially when you talk about, you know, when you talk about work requirements, I, 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 there are seniors who are raised in the age. Dependents are defined as children six and under, or if you're totally incapacitated. This pandemic has caused such a crisis in senior care. Uh, there are no caregivers. Uh, children find themselves as caregivers in a sandwich generation. And that does it. So I'm, I'm very worried about what is really happening there. Uh, and I think people, the environmental impact on this bill deeply disturbs me. And by the way, I'm going to tell you, as a Midwesterner, yep. the things that keep being given are helping the coastals. They're helping. Uh, I want to make sure that my Midwest and my Auto, the auto industry and transportation and mobility don't keep paying a price as people give things to one sector and ignore the Midwest. And that worries me as well. Let's talk about the environmental uh, impact on all of this and what it means for energy writ large, because this proposes streamlining what was a really uh, landmark uh, legislative accomplishment that is the National Environmental Policy Act. Um, your husband, former Congressman John Dingell, worked for years to get this passed. You led a resolution in Congress to oppose rollbacks to it. The way this has been framed by some conservatives is that, and, and in reading it, that it will streamline within one to two years approval or rejection of policies for both oil and gas, but also for clean energy projects, essentially to get them through faster. What is your reaction to what this does to that in, in this bill? That's what I am trying to very much understand. My husband did write that bill. My husband uh, was a very complicated man, but he loved the outdoors and he knew the right of communities to protect uh, the environmental impact of decisions and to also protect our outdoors. I have been very clear. This bill was written 50 years. It needs to be modernized. And for people who don't know me, let me be very clear. I worked for General Motors for three decades. Right. I see both sides of this. Yeah. People have focused on transmission, but I want to make sure they're not precedenting things that are going to gut this bill. That's what worries me. Okay, so that's on NEPA. Just one final question as it pertains to energy and a big win here for your fellow Democrat, Joe Manchin. You sit on the Energy and Commerce Committee. Um, this is a legislative win for him in terms of that Mountain Valley pipeline, which is a national, natural gas pipeline in West Virginia um, that he has been pushing and pushing and pushing for. This is what he said. He said he was pleased to see McCarthy do this, and he said there's tremendous value in completing it to the domestic energy production drive down to drive down costs across America. That's Joe Manchin. You said you see both sides of it. Do you agree with that? I, look, I have a great respect for Joe Manchin. Joe and I are good friends. He and my husband were very good friends. Yeah. Um, so I know that that was a deal that was cut with the White House last year. But what I want to make sure that in giving this deal to Joe Manchin, I have repeatedly 
uh, offered amendments in committee trying to make sure we protect judicial review. We, that's been a bedrock of environmental policy. Do we need to cut the time? Yes, no question. But we can't take away people's ability to protect the environmental yeah. impact too. And the subjectivity of what it is protecting yeah. human environmental impact. So. A lot, I have a lot of questions. Yeah, and to people who don't know, that legislation written by your husband, NEPA, allowed people to bring these concerns about these energy projects through the court process in a more, way that proved more productive and successful for them. Uh, Congresswoman, thank you very much. And it sounds like you have a lot of questions that you still need answers to before you vote. I'll be working it today because we have to get this done. That is the okay. one thing I know. We have to pay our bills. Thank you. We appreciate it. Come back soon. Thank you. New this morning, the Russian capital getting a firsthand sense of war after an alleged drone attack. So you see a plume of smoke there in the center of your screen rising. And you can actually see in this next video, you see a drone flying over the city. You'll see in just a moment, see this man there pointing it out as he looks at it out of his window. Uh, there is also a video that's been posted of what appears to be a fragment of a downed drone. Russian state media says two people were injured in Moscow and three residential buildings were damaged in the attack. Russian military officials are blaming Ukraine for the attack, something Ukraine denies. We should note that attack came just hours after another aerial assault on Kyiv. Ukrainian officials say one woman was killed, 13 other were injured. There have been 17 attacks on Kyiv so far this month ahead of the planned counteroffensive, and officials just released this body camera video. Listen to that. Of police responding to one of the attacks, a real-time look at the daily reality of war as officers help injured civilians. Joining us now from CNN, uh, former CNN Moscow Bureau Chief Jill Doherty. She's an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. Good morning, Jill. I'm glad you could join us last minute this morning just to get your reaction to this continued bombardment on Kyiv and then also what we saw take place in Moscow. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> what happened in Moscow is really significant. You know, uh, there have been attacks by apparently Ukrainians over the border close to Ukraine. But this is Moscow. This is a big deal. Moscow is protected by very uh, serious air defenses. And they say, the Russian officials say that these drones were shot down. But just the mere fact, remember a month ago, we had that drone, two drones that went over the Kremlin. And the Kremlin in the beginning wasn't quite sure how to deal with it. Kind of the same thing here. They haven't really been able to deal, I would say, in a propaganda way with what's happening. And, you know, if you look at the drones, the damage militarily is not really great. But the propaganda value really is. So you have a dilemma by Putin. Uh, you know, you could say, he has to admit that the war is expanding and that it's hitting the Russian capital. That's very bad for him politically. On the other hand, I think what you're going to see is the Kremlin trying to spin this, that the war, you know, now we have to unite. This is existential. It's for the survival of Russia, et cetera. They will use it to try to get the Russian people united. But I think it's, it's really a very disturbing thing for uh, Putin, it's a real problem for him. So they'll try to spin that into some other propaganda. I found it interesting, our CNN military analyst, Colonel Cedric Layton, said this morning very clearly, he says this is a warning to the Russian people. How do you think the Russian people are taking it today? Well, I've been on social media, of course, trying to uh, figure out what they're thinking. It's kind of hard to say, but I think there's, there's an element of shock 
there's no question that drones have actually now not just kind of symbolically gone over the Kremlin, but now they're hitting neighborhoods. And I looked at a map of where those drones hit. So they're in the city and then outside. And they're in areas kind of west of Moscow where you have a lot of elite housing. The president lives out in that area. Um, so this is this is really significant, even if, again, the damage is minimal, but the psychological damage, I think, is uh, quite strong. Jill Doherty, thank you very much. Appreciate you. This morning, a manhunt is underway after two inmates escaped from a Mississippi jail. This happened yesterday morning. Police say Michael Lewis has been captured, but they are still looking for Joseph Spring. Officials believe they got out through an air duct, and it comes after four men escaped the same jail just over a month ago. Isabel Rosales joins us now. Good morning. What do we know? Hey, good morning to you, Poppy. The sheriff, uh, Tyree Jones of Hines County, says that this uh, facility has been plagued with issues really since its inception. It's 30 years old. Um, he says it's poorly built. He's also blaming poor staffing for these multiple jailbreaks, uh, saying that these issues need to be addressed even as they're currently working to build a new facility. So on Monday morning, there was a deputy patrolling the outside area and he discovered a fence that was damaged, some items and then blood. So they conducted a certified headcount. And that is where they found Michael Lewis and Joseph Spring to be missing. They also found a breach in the ceiling area of a recreation room and believe that these inmates escaped through an air duct that led outside. They jumped a fence and then they got away. Here's the sheriff on this latest escape. Once again, I know I apologize before here we are once again, and I'm apologizing to the people of Hines County regarding what I would consider another public safety breach in our facility. Right. And now Spring has been at the facility since November on parole and probation violations related to a burglary charge. Um, he's also got a few holds on him from other agencies. The sheriff does not know where Spring is or where he's headed or if he's armed, but he should be considered armed and dangerous. Uh, they believe that uh, he is on foot because there's no reports of any stolen vehicles nearby and was last seen Poppy wearing a red jumpsuit. Isabel Rosales will follow it. Thank you. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will be in Iowa today where he's kickstarting a multi-stop four-day tour as he winds up to take on Donald Trump. Our political panel weighs in. And Ralph Yarl, the Kansas City teenager who was shot in the head when he mistakenly just rang the wrong doorbell, just made his first major public appearance. We have an update for you on his recovery. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Everyone knows if I'm the nominee, I will beat Biden uh, and I will serve two terms and I will be able to uh, destroy leftism in this country and leave woke ideology on the dustbin of history. Quite a promise there. A bold prediction from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He is heading to Iowa today to relaunch his campaign after that glitchy Twitter launch. The uh, stops there and in other early primary states this week are an opportunity, right, to chip away at former President Trump's lead in the polls and an opportunity to try to distance himself 
from both the former president, but also a growing GOP field. Let's talk more about all of this. CNN political commentator and former White House communications director during the Trump administration, Alyssa Farrah Griffin is here, and CNN political analyst and national politics reporter at the New York Times, Ested Herndon. Good morning, guys. Good morning. So it's interesting just over the weekend how much we saw Ron DeSantis trying to say, I am not Trump. I am not just a sort of less loud Trump, but I'm actually different on policy. Yes, and he took he took aim specifically at the First Step Act, which yes. was one of the most bipartisan accomplishments of the Trump administration. Um, a, an interesting move. I mean, he is mapping out a campaign that in many ways is to the right of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's relitigating COVID, saying Donald Trump should have done less. It should have been less restrictive and had less closures, you know, repealing the First Step Act, among other things. Yeah, but DeSantis voted for the first version of the First Step Act when he was in Congress. He was a very different man when he was in Congress. Um, he's also a strong supporter of aid to Ukraine then. I think that the t- what the DeSantis team is trying to figure out now is, A, how to differentiate themselves from Donald Trump, but in a way that can break through. And frankly, the answer to that tends to be writing to the furthest right. However, you do have to worry about the fact that this will eventually become a general election and some of the positions he's taking are radioactive to a general election audience. Yeah, and the, the initial conceit for his campaign was kind of electability-driven, the idea that he could be the person who could do, unlike Donald Trump, and really bring in a coalition of people. What he has done over the last couple months is really shift that, to so run so ideologically to the right, to try to make Donald Trump look inconsistent with the values that he made popular. And that's a different strategy than I think the DeSantis version we saw coming out of the midterms. It's really putting meat on the bones to really why the why of his campaign. But that's a different type of why than I think a lot of the donors and a lot of people were coming to him initially. He, he's really switched up what the DeSantis brand would be as he's getting closer to the primary. And to put a finer point on that is he didn't win what the numbers he did in Miami-Dade because he was running anti-LGBTQ mm-hmm. and very far-right policies. It was a strong economy in Florida, low tax policies, a good business environment. And that's all kind of being chipped away at. Mm-hmm. So what's so interesting, and I feel like we've talked about this so much and we're going to continue to talk about it, is as we're leading into the primary, we know that that is a lot different than when we get to a general election. Yeah. But what's fascinating is as we see and hear from some of these other more moderate Republicans, Chris Sununu just on Sunday was pointing out to Jake Tapper, okay, the culture wars are fine, but if that's your top priority, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Because there are so many other issues, whether it be the economy, whether it being fiscal responsibility, that the party seems to have lost sight of. I guess the question is at this point, is there room for that within the scope right, within the scope of the Republican Party at this point? That's the key question, because for a lot of people, it's wish casting. They wish the economy was the top priority for voters. They wish that they were really making those priorities. But in Donald Trump's version of the Republican Party, it's not necessarily wokeness that has been the kind of cohesive ideology, but it has been grievance. It has been a kind of retribution. Mm -hmm. It has been uh, uh, being an enemy to the enemies. And that has been really what's drawn people toward him. The problem for DeSantis is as he's running in that are you out grievancing Donald Trump? Out grievancing. It's <laughs> a question. I'm not and, sure it can be done. And, and that's really what he's trying to do here. He's trying to get people to say, okay, if you're looking for a kind of way to thumb your nose at the, your, your enemies, I'm the guy, not Donald Trump. That's a different uh, a kind of calculation that I think yeah. we've seen before, but it's a reality that in this version of the Republican Party, that is the bind that's holding things together. There is not really evidence that there is room for that economic-driven message that we've seen the Sununus that we 
we've seen the other moderate Republicans mm-hmm. taking. The onus, I think, is on them to really prove that there is an electorate for those I, ideas yeah, yeah. rather than it is on the other folks. Well, and that, that's an important point you raise because we talk in primary seasons about base voters. Um, and what we forget about is that any registered Republican who you can convince to turn out in a primary is a primary voter, mm-hmm. is a base voter. So what DeSantis is doing is catering to the most traditional right, uh, furthest right lane in a primary. But there are a lot of voters who could be activated in early primary states who often wait to vote Republican till the mm-hmm. general. Mm-hmm. That's the lane that a Chris Sununu would need to take. Turn out voters who don't generally turn out in a primary, but are able to vote in a Republican primary. Mm-hmm. And that's the economy is where the, yeah. the message is. We that's heard him um, say on CNN on Sunday morning, uh, Governor Sununu, that he's going to decide in the next week or two. Yeah. If he's running for president or not, he said the hardest challenge, you know, he's already got the family on board. So he just has to make the decision. He sounds more likely than not, I think, to jump in from just listening to his interviews. But interesting, Governor New Hampshire, Ron DeSantis is going to go to New Hampshire this week. How does he play in a state like New Hampshire? I mean, Ron DeSantis has made a kind of early state strategy, even at this point. You know, usually this is a time of national consensus building, a kind of national narrative. They've already been pointing to the amount of organizers that the super PAC has in early states, the amount uh, of kind of he thinks he can turn out evangelicals in those early states. But New Hampshire, I think, is a unique place. You know, the size of it really forces those individual questions. Those uh, voters in New Hampshire feel like they deserve those kind of individual interactions actions with candidates. Yeah. And that has not necessarily been Ron DeSantis's strong suit, right? And so I think when he goes to a place like Iowa and New Hampshire, we're really going to see a test of his individual retail politics and getting off of those, I think, talking points, because he's really built his brand in the safe space of conservative politics. And that is not how Iowa and New Hampshire operate. They are going to push Governor DeSantis. Is there a sense of how much the campaign has been trying to prepare him for these moments? Because we've all been talking about it a lot. But I guess the question is, is that message getting through to Ron DeSantis? Mm -hmm. I think they're trying. I think we saw in Iowa shortly before his official launch where there was a little more interacting with voters and diners. But on New Hampshire, the whole state of New Hampshire is the size of some congressional districts. You can actually physically shake almost every hand in that (laughs) state. Those are the people who tend to win that state. So I think that's going to be a challenge. I think there's a very Iowa-centric strategy Mm -hmm. for the DeSantis team. Um, And that is a state where the cultural issues, the life issue, um, the anti-LGBTQ issues are going to play very well. I think it gets a little bit harder as you get to the later primary states. Absolutely. That abortion question specifically has been something that DeSantis has tried to push in Iowa because he knows there's that evangelical base there that may be soft for Donald Trump. And I spoke to Governor Chris Sununu last week and he said that any Republican talking about a national abortion ban is hurting the party and it is a losing strategy. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. Thank you both so much. Estelle, Alyssa, good to have you. All right, more travelers pass through airports this Memorial Day weekend than even before the pandemic. We have new data just released by the TSA. And Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes reporting to prison today for her 11-year sentence. So what will life behind bars look like for her? That's ahead. That was my favorite segment. You guys bring such good energy. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes must report to prison today. The tech entrepreneur is set to surrender at a federal facility in Texas. In November, a judge sentenced her to more than 11 years behind bars for fraud and conspiracy. She raised millions of dollars from investors while making false claims about her health care startup. Arosa Flores has been following this all, and she joins us outside of the federal prison in Bryan, Texas. Good morning, Rosa. 
Well, good morning, Poppy. According to the court order, Elizabeth Holmes is to report to the federal facility that you see behind me no later than 2 p.m. today. Now, it's unclear if she has read the inmate handbook, but all 82 pages are available online. And those are the rules and regulations that she will have to abide by for the next 11 years. I believe the individual is the answer to the challenges of health care. Elizabeth Holmes, the disgraced founder of Theranos, is set to trade in her trademark black turtlenecks for a prison jumpsuit after multiple failed appeals to keep her out of prison. Holmes, now a mother of two, is set to report to the federal prison camp in Bryan, Texas today. The minimum security women's prison is approximately 100 miles from Houston, Texas, and houses more than 600 inmates, according to the Federal Bureau of Prisons. The right to protect the health and well-being of every person, of those we love, is a basic human right. Holmes was only 19 years old when she dropped out of Stanford University to pursue her startup Theranos full time. Once valued at $9 billion at its peak, Theranos attracted an impressive list of investors and retail partners with claims that it had developed technology to test for a wide range of medical conditions using just a few drops of blood. So this is the little tubes that we collect the, the samples in. We call them the nanotainer, and they're about this big. Holmes appearing on magazine covers and was hailed as the next Steve Jobs. I've always believed that the purpose of building a business is to make an impact in the world. The company began to unravel after a Wall Street Journal investigation in 2015 reported that Theranos had only ever performed roughly a dozen of the hundreds of tests it offered using its proprietary technology and with questionable accuracy. Investors and retail partners backed out, and in June of 2018, Holmes pleaded not guilty. Ultimately, she was indicted for fraud before being convicted last year. Her rise and fall depicted in the hit Hulu show, The Dropout. You don't understand the business. you don't understand the science. Despite her conviction, Holmes told the New York Times that she plans to work on health care-related inventions behind bars. Quote, I still dream about being able to contribute in that space. Now back to that inmate handbook, those 82 pages. It states that once Holmes turns herself in, she will go through a social and medical screening, that all inmates have to maintain a job, that the pay range is between 12 cents and 40 cents. Now it's unclear if that's per hour, that's what I'm assuming, but it's not clear based on that handbook. It also says that initially all inmates are assigned to the food service area. Now Poppy, it also says that inmates wake up at 6 a.m. every morning and they have to make their own bed. Poppy? Rosa Flores, thank you for the reporting there in Bryan, Texas. Appreciate it. All this just in, travelers really packed into U.S. airports over the Memorial Day holiday weekend, surpassing even those pre-pandemic levels. CNN aviation correspondent Pete Muntean is live in Washington. So, Pete, there was some expectation that we could see these higher numbers. Uh, give us the latest. Well, you know, airlines have really passed the test here, Erica, and that's the big headline. Not only were cancellations low, 
but airlines carried 300,000 more people over the Memorial Day holiday than compared to 2019, back before the pandemic. The TSA just told us it screened 2.58 million people at airports nationwide yesterday. That was the second of two waves, people coming home. The first wave, people leaving home, that was even bigger. 2.72 million people screened at airports nationwide on Friday. That's the highest number we have seen since 2019. Day after day, the numbers were bigger than pre-pandemic figures. A lot of huge superlatives there. Also, the fact that cancellations were relatively low, 700 in total between Thursday and Monday. When you take that five-day period and compare it to the same period last year, airlines canceled 2,700 flights, really kicked off these cascading meltdowns that lasted all summer long, 55,000 in total between Memorial Day and Labor Day. So this past weekend was only about a quarter of what we saw last year. I spoke to Scott Kyes of going. And he said that this is really critical. It shows that the airlines did a pretty good job here, but they simply cannot let their guard down going through the summer. Listen. I think we can say without reservation that airlines have passed the test. I'm hopeful that means we're going to have a pretty good summer when it comes to flying. We have rush after rush ahead, July 4th, Labor Day. Although the top driver of delays and cancellations really is the weather. That's the it factor when it comes to the summertime. We will see how airlines handle these big thunderstorms that come through, can throw things off, a real uh, domino effect that can cause uh, cancellations and delays uh, system-wide. And that, of course, is out of their control. Uh, Pete, I also yeah. wanted to ask you about this. Air New Zealand says it's going to start weighing passengers before they board the plane <laughs> on certain flights. This is not the little puddle jumpers where anybody no. who's taking one of those flights, they know that you get weighed along with your bag and you get placed where you need to be. They say this is so that they can gather some data on the weight load and the distribution for planes. Um, what more do you know about this program? What, what do you think it'll really tell them? The good news here is that this is not in the U.S., and this is a pretty <laughs> limited trial run. Uh, Air New Zealand only doing this on flights from Auckland until July 2nd. The airline really needs to set a new baseline here for what it considers the standard weight of passengers. The good news here in the U.S., this has already happened for a long time the FAA considered the standard weight of a person on an airplane to be 170 pounds in the summer, 175 pounds in the wintertime when they're carrying more coats and bags. Uh, that changed back in 2021. It went from 190 in the summer to 195 in the wintertime. You know, things are getting different. People are getting bigger and they're carrying more things. People are often incentivized uh, to bring carry-ons on board a plane. That's why the FAA did it here in the U.S. Yeah, I don't like my children to check bags, so I'm one of those people. <laughs> Me too. They have to fit it in the overhead and they have to carry it themselves. Um, That's right. I'm also happy I'm not getting weight before I get on the next plane. I'm not going to lie. Pete, appreciate it, my friend. Thank Anytime. you. How big are your carry-ons? My carry-ons? Like, do they fit? Always. <laughs> I'm like the embarrassing one. You're shoving it in? Yeah, and then I'm unpacking it We're on the have, seat because we'll I can't get enough tutorial. in it. tutorial. Thank you. I need that. <laughs> I need that. Well, listen to this. Dozens of tech executives, researchers, even celebrities are teaming up to warn the world about what they call the possible, and these are their words, quote, risk of extinction yeah. that comes with artificial intelligence. The so-called godfather of AI, Jeffrey Hinton. Also, on the other side of your screen, you see Sam Altman. He is the CEO of, of the company that created ChatGPT. And the musician Grimes are just a few of the big names who signed this very succinct statement, very short, 
just released this morning by the Center for AI Safety. Here is what it reads, quote, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. Fascinating. Uplifting, Uplifting. Uplifting. There. But I'm glad they're warning. Me too. So then what's the plan to stop it? Well, they have a lot of power. Like the, the people in charge of, of the these bottle. companies have a lot of power Let's in that. So. Uh, a ninth person we're learning has been rescued from that collapsed apartment building in Davenport, Iowa. Officials, though, say that there are still others who remain unaccounted for. So what does that mean for this search? What we're learning and also what it could mean uh, in terms of when they can demolish that building. Also, the average price of a wedding going up since last year. What's behind the rising costs? Hey, baby. Love that song. I think I want to marry you. As you get your morning started, here are five things to know. Drones striking the heart of Russia. The Kremlin is accusing Ukraine of attacking Moscow with at least eight drones, but the Ukrainians are denying any direct involvement. The debt limit deal about to face its first major hurdle today. The powerful House Rules Committee will decide whether that bill will even make it to the floor. Nine people shot, including a one-year-old child along a boardwalk in Hollywood, Florida. We're told at least one person has been detained in that shooting. Search teams reportedly found a ninth survivor more than 24 hours after an apartment building partially collapsed. This happened in Davenport, Iowa. The rescue came after city officials made plans to demolish the building. The Kansas City teenager who was shot in the head after ringing the wrong doorbell, making his first public appearance since that shooting. Ralph Yall participated in a fundraiser walk to raise money for people dealing with brain injuries. Those are the five things to know this morning. Don't forget to download the Five Things podcast every morning. Go to CNN.com slash Five Things. So most wedding isn't complete without a little music. You need a DJ, a band, maybe a wedding singer. Cindy and Scott are newlyweds. She loves this guy right here, and he loves somebody else. You just can't win. And so it goes. That is, of course, Adam Sandler in the 1998 comedy The Wedding Singer. God, that was 98? Uh, What you would have paid for a wedding singer back then, nowhere near what you would pay today. So just how expensive is it to say I do in 2023? Joining us now, CNN senior data reporter Harry Enten. All right, what's the morning number? I'm guessing it's large. It is large. All right, this morning's number is $29,000. That's the average cost of a wedding in 2023, $29,000. That's up 17% from pre-pandemic back in 2019. And if you want to get married in the state of New York, Good luck to you, because the average wedding costs most in Washington, D.C., $45,000. In New Jersey, $44,000. In New York, $44,000. I hope you are saving a lot of money. I know I am. And why are the weddings becoming so expensive? Look at the 2022 wedding costs versus back in 2019. DJs up 25%. Makeup artists up 20%. Flowers up 20%. Wedding dresses up 19%. And hairstylists up 18%. So the cost of a wedding becoming larger because the components are becoming more and more expensive. Is your girlfriend watching? Because I just heard you say you're saving. I was thinking the same thing. Uh, She's either watching live (laughs) or she's going to watch it on tape. How is the state of marriage in America these days? Yeah, so the state of marriage, perhaps not as strong as you would want. So age 18, age 15 plus who are married, 
back in 1960, look at that, a little south of 70%. Look where we were in 2021. Less than 50% of those age 15 plus are, in fact, married. I'm okay with some of that. I don't think anybody should be married at 15. I'm just going to say that right there. (laughs) And I'll just note that the median age at first marriage, way up now versus 1960, up by nine years and seven years. That makes me feel better. Thanks, Harry. Thank you. All right, Miami dominating Boston, set to go head-to-head with the Denver Nuggets in the NBA Finals later this week. Bob Costas is here to talk all things basketball. So it was a game seven. They stand eye-to-eye with history, and they did not blink. The Heat are going to the NBA Finals. Oh, and there we go. Oh, it was a rough one for Beantown. I mean, there was so much excitement. It took seven games, but the Miami Heat got their revenge against the Boston Celtics, taking the lead in the first quarter, really never looking back. They won last night's matchup, 103-84, a hard-fought series, to put it mildly. The Heat, of course, won the first three games, and then it was Boston making that historic comeback, taking the next three, including that buzzer-beater game six in Miami, which forced everybody back to Boston. But it turned out in the end that Celtics didn't have it in them to get it done. So the Heat making history the first time in 24 years that an eighth seed has won a conference championship. So now it is on to the finals while they will face the Denver Nuggets. That kicks off June 1st. Also the first time the Nuggets are in the finals. Mm -hmm. Seventh appearance for the Heat. There's a lot of numbers there. A lot of numbers. But at the end of the day, there's also a lot of heart and a lot of excitement about this team. There's been so much talk about Jimmy Butler, not just with my teenage boys, but, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of in general. But I learned it from them. But I do love his whole story. He ends up MVP for the Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah, for the finals. He is he vowed that he would get them over the hump. And he he really did. Yeah, although, not to change that narrative, but last night was a letdown because Game 6 was so dramatic and mm-hmm. so exciting, and you had the chance for history, the Celtics perhaps coming back from an 0-3 deficit, but even if the Heat had won the game, it was not a dramatic or exciting game. They, they took charge of it in the first quarter and never let up. The Celtics were never really in the game. Now Boston fans have to put up with this. The Bruins had the best regular season in NHL history, right. and they lost to an eighth seed, the Florida Panthers, who are now in the finals. The Celtics were overwhelming favorites, and they had the seventh game at home, even after coming back from that 0-3 deficit, and they lose to the Heat. So two heartbreaks for Boston fans. Meanwhile, the Heat and the Panthers are in the NBA and Stanley Cup finals, respectively. It has never happened in the history of both leagues, where teams from the same city or basic area won both the Stanley Cup and the NBA championship in the same year. In 1994, the Rangers won the Stanley Cup and the Knicks were up on the Rockets 3-2 in the NBA Finals, but Houston won game six and seven in Houston. So that has never happened. So this could be huge. Yeah, and both would be very large underdogs, the Heat and, and the Panthers. Underdogs. Harry had Harry Anton had both right. the trophies in here last week, so maybe they'll be heading to Florida. We'll see. So much is always made of home court advantage. Mm-hmm. Not in this series. No, not in this series. <laughs> the Celtics won what? The the Celtics won two of three in Miami. In Miami, and the Heat won three out of four, including Game Seven yeah. in Boston. So you play all year long for home court advantage or home ice advantage, as the case may be. And sometimes it doesn't prove to be much of an advantage at all. Doesn't always work out. Um, The Heat also a little bit of an underdog team in some ways. And that, I mean, I love a good underdog story, I'll say, selfishly. So I'd love to see that Uh happen. 
but it's great too, I think, just the message that it sends about who they are as a team. What is that culture for this team? Well, Eric Spolstra, who kind of for a long time was perceived as just being Pat Riley's sort of, uh, I don't know how you'd put it, like Riley's really running the team and, and he's tutoring Spolstra, but Spolstra has been there for so long and has done so well he now ranks among the very best NBA coaches. And apparently there is a culture there. You know, the NBA, when it was on NBC in the 90s, I was around it all the time. So I'm not going to pretend to be there on a day-in, day-out basis. But they've got a culture there uh, that works. And when they lost Game 6 at home in ridiculous fashion, the putback by White right at the with one-tenth of a second to go, amazing. everybody thought they'd be completely deflated. They'd coughed up a 3-0 lead. They're going to Boston for Game 7. And Spolstra said in the immediate aftermath, like seconds after, as soon as he sat down for the interview, we can't wait to play Game 7. We wish it would tip off right now. We're good to go. <laughs> you know, there was no hangdog aspect yeah. to this. So that's the right message to send. Meanwhile, the Nuggets have almost two weeks of rest. Mm -hmm. And I'd rather have rest. People talk about, oh, they're rusty, they're out of rhythm. I'd rather have the rest. Here now the heat have to turn around and go to the altitude of Denver yeah. for the first two games against Nikola Jokic and uh, the, the, the Nuggets, who are a very, very good team. Can we talk about Jokic for a minute? Because yeah. this is his biggest stage, for sure, uh -huh. that he's had a younger player. Jimmy Butler obviously uh, has a lot of the attention. But how do you expect Nikola Jokic to perform? Well, he's a two-time MVP, finished second this year in the MVP voting to the 76ers' Joel Embiid. Uh, for casual fans, this will be a revelation. Around the NBA, it's already known. Uh, this is a multi-skilled player. At first glance, he doesn't appear to be that athletic, whatever the heck that's supposed to mean. Larry Bird didn't appear to be all that athletic, and he was one of the greatest players <laughs> of all time. You know, Jokic has, has a bag of, of tricks, if that's the way to put it. He just, he does things. He shoots the ball from distance. He has an inside game. Um, He's one of the best players in recent history. So we have a lot to watch. Before we let you go, yeah. um, there was a lot made before the season started about some of the changes uh, with Major League Baseball, yeah. larger bases. So games are faster. They're ending, mm -hmm. they what, are. I think 30 minutes quicker, mm -hmm. more bases being stolen. Ultimately, is this working out? Yeah, it's working out almost exactly the way they intended. It's not just the length of games, which, as you say, are about a half hour shorter. It's the pace mm -hmm. of games. I did a game... Um, on the Major League Baseball Network a couple of weeks ago in St. Louis, the Cardinals beat the Dodgers 16-8. to 8. It lasted barely more than three hours, like wow. three hours and, and four minutes. No one complains about that because there was so much action and so much stuff going on. But you shouldn't have a 2-1 game that the home team wins, so you play eight and a half innings, and that lasts three and a half hours, which is what was happening. Baseball is supposed to have a pleasing, leisurely pace, not a plodding, lethargic pace. And so they've achieved that in terms of the pace. And now outlawing shifts, mm -hmm. there's more base hits. There's also more athletic plays within the infield. Instead of the ball being hit right at somebody because analytics has them perfectly positioned, the guy has to range to his left or his right, and you see more exciting plays. They also increased the size of the bases. Mm -hmm. Some people liken them to pizza boxes. But the thing that really has increased the stolen bases is you're only allowed to throw over twice to chase the runner back during any given at-bat. Oh. And that, that allows the base runner to be a little bit more adventurous. Yeah. Makes for a fun game. There you go. Yeah. Great to see you. Thanks, Thanks for being here this morning, Bob. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back.
your morning moment, a look at last night's Manhattan Hench. That's what they're calling it. Lighting up the streets of New York City. For four days a year, the sun aligns perfectly through the spaces between the buildings. The effect lasts only a few minutes when the beam of light shoots through the streets that run east to west. Spectators can catch that phenomenon again tonight about 8, 12 p.m. Eastern time. I've never seen it. I didn't know it existed. I go to bed at 8, but I'm going to stay up tonight until 8.13. You might not be able to see it at your house, though. <laughs> womp womp in Brooklyn. Womp womp. The good news is lots of people will post pictures about it. All right. So we can look at them in Thanks. the morning. <laughs> we'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for being with us. CNN News Central is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.